We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Now, Second Chronicles, please, tonight in chapter number 11. We're getting a lot of Old Testament reading these days. Second Chronicles and chapter 11. Remember, we have seen the end of Solomon's reign, the revolt uh, against Rehoboam and his foolishness. And now we will come to uh, some more of that. Young people are headed out, it looks like. So enjoy yourselves. All right, Second Chronicles and the 11th chapter. <clears throat> now when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your brethren. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. Well, isn't that interesting? They actually obeyed. One time, it seems like uh, very, very uncommon for them, but they did. Of course, it wasn't a very uh, nice thing they were about to have to do, they thought. So good to turn back and not have all the bloodshed. Uh, verse number five, so Rehoboam <clears throat> dwelled in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. And he built Bethlehem, uh, Etam, Tekoa, Beth-Zur, Sokoth, Adullam, Gath, Merishah, Ziph, Adoraim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aljalan, and Hebron, which are in Judah and Benjamin, fortified cities. And he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. Also in every city, he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests from, for the high places, for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Very, very good. Uh, at least, you know, it could have been better, but it was at least good in that sense. Verse 18, then Rehoboam took for himself as wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abihel, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. 
and she bore him children, Jeush, Shemariah, and Zeham. After her, he took Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shalomith. Now, Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter, uh, granddaughter sorry, of Absalom, more than all his wives and his concubines, for he took 18 wives and 60 concubines, begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. Now, here he's violating the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, not to multiply wives for himself. <clears throat> and Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief, to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. He dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin to every fortified city and gave them provisions in abundance. He also sought many wives for them. Oh, so again, the people of Israel can't, uh, let me say it this way, sinners cannot contain themselves. It's not just Jewish people, but they are the ones that are Exampled here in this text tonight, who were misbehaving and doing what they shouldn't do. So doing some right, doing some wrong, in a tough situation for the nation there. They should not have been doing that. But in any case, let me uh, turn our attention to two things tonight. Uh, we'll be heading over to Matthew 18 if uh, time permits us tonight. So you might want to turn there. Uh, unless we get sidetracked with uh, some other question or something, but uh, I do want to touch on that if we can. Matthew 18, uh, the, the thing that came to mind was I, I received some good feedback on the Sunday school lesson this morning, and I wanted to, uh, I was just thinking about that this afternoon a little bit. I wanted to say uh, something about that. We have this real challenge when we're working with ourselves or your, our young people. Again, I kind of Look at that dual aspect of it. And in this sense, you know, we want to know uh, sound teaching, sound doctrine from the Bible, right? And that's one of the areas that John deals with in his letter. If you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and if you believe that he came from God, and, and you know, he's the son of God, and those sorts of things. And so we might focus on teaching our kids, we might, we could focus on teaching our kids sound doctrine, at the same time, we could forget that sound doctrine includes, in accordance with what Paul wrote in Timothy, it includes behavior, sound doctrine. He, he said there in 1 Timothy, uh, the law was made for uh, people who were uh, out of line, basically. Let's see if we can uh, find this. Uh, the law, yes, 1 Timothy 1.9, the law was... Uh, is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. And so it's not sufficient for us to teach our kids Bible verses or to teach them doctrine, like what does this Bible verse mean, but to, to, we have to think about the practical doctrine, if you will, of how our children live. So we can teach them, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Super. They should know that. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. But here's the problem. What is the connection of that abstract doctrine to little Johnny or little Jane? Like, all have sinned. They memorize that verse, but then when it comes to 
how they handle sin. Remember how we talked about it this morning. Do they confess their sin? Do they admit it? Do they, do they apologize to mom and dad for having a bad attitude or for doing something wrong with their brother or sister and, and, and really mean it? Not just like saying sorry just to get that part over with and get your mom and dad off your back because now you can check the box. The connection between all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all need to repent and believe in the gospel and the individual child, young person, adult, is so crucial. So teaching them doctrine is not just the abstract, but it's the application of that to themselves in their walk with the Lord. And so we have to strive to do that and take opportunities as, as they come up to say, okay, here's what the doctrine is, the, the, the abstract, if you will, or generic, generic, you know, personless doctrine. And then here's how the personless doctrine connects to the person. You have sinned. You need to apologize. You need to confess that sin, not just to mom and dad, but to the Lord. Um, and so make sure that you're not just focusing on the surface level or the abstract level, but you're taking it down deeper into the hearts of your children so that they can understand, hopefully. Of course, only God is able to open their eyes and their hearts to this, but if you're not exposing them to the world below the abstract personless doctrine up here and showing them how it applies to them, then you're not doing the best job that you can to teach them sound doctrine in terms of its personal connection, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it's very important for us. And that's where we looked this morning at, you know, the practical matter of how, do our, how does someone handle sin? You know, do they say they have no sin? Do they say they're walking in the light, but they're actually walking in darkness? Or they say they have fellowship with him and they're walking in darkness? You know, that's, that's one thing, but then actually what what is the reality underneath? Are they more like verses 7 and 9, uh, speaking about walking in the light as he is in the light and, and confessing their sins? That's an entirely different matter. So that I bring just to kind of as a footnote, if you will, to what we looked at this morning, and hopefully that is helpful. We have got to be kind of on our toes as parents, don't we, and grandparents, uh, for the opportunities that come up to teach our kids, um, that's, uh, you know, difficult. That's difficult. In this age, in, this, in any age, uh, the sinful heart is, is what it is and wants to mask that and not deal with it. So, well, there is that. Anything else? Follow up to that or any, any other question? Anything else? We've got the four-letter acronym of the dictionary all settled, so we got that question dealt with. <laughs> yes, okay. Matthew 18 then. Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we began the chapter analyzing the disciples asking what I called a bad question to the Lord, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know, eh, wrong question. You know, don't ask that question. Don't think like that if you're a Christian person. So we went through that. Jesus warned about offenses who would come, little ones that believe in him, 
who were caused to sin, that that would be a, a very bad offense for anybody who did cause those kinds of sins. And uh, he pronounces the woe on the world because of offenses. You know, the offenses have to come. God has ordained them, but those who bring them are going to be in big-time trouble. And then he shows us how we are to deal very stringently with our sin. And an individual level with regard to those offenses. Then we looked at the parable uh, of the lost sheep, and that was in verses 10 through 14. Are you a lost sheep? Feel a little bit like you're wandering away from the fold? The uh, Lord says, don't despise one of these little ones um, because he's come to seek and save that which is lost. He's concerned for those little people, uh, not just little in stature, but people who are, of course, all little compared to God. And he gives an illustration and he's about the care. Really, this was about the care of God for his sheep. That if he has a hundred sheep, if, if, and he uses the illustration of a shepherd, and one of them goes astray, you'd think, well, oh, that's a 1% loss factor. Okay, whatever. Uh, we got 99. We'll be happy. He's not happy. He wants to go fetch that one and make the whole flock or the flock whole again. So he goes off and... and uh, seeks this one on the mountains to uh, go find the one that is straying away. And if he finds it, he rejoices over that one at that time more than over the 99. And the 99 are not slighted here. It's not like they're not worth as much as the other one, like, you know, because they got less attention, right? Well, that one always gets attention because he's always going astray. And the, and the, the, the shepherd is rejoicing over him. What are we, you know, chopped mutton? Uh, you know what? No, it's not really that way. The, every one of those sheep actually represents a person who was captured by God's grace and brought into the fold, and God rejoiced over them in their di- in their day, right? When you came to to uh, faith in Christ, and so he, he illustrates the great care of God for the sheep, even leaving ninety nine behind. And he says in verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, again, little ones are representing uh, verse number 6, the little ones who believe in me. Those ones, he does not want any of them to perish. And so we, we stopped there last time, but remember what I said last time, that people get kind of turned up around and get knotted up in this passage, and they say, oh, wow, it's talking about little ones perishing. Maybe little ones can lose their salvation or, or something. And, but notice what the text says. It's not the will of your Father that any of these little ones perish. I think we just need to read the text and say, is it God's will that any of those ones that believe in him perish? The answer is no, if it's not his will in this case. Now, this is not, I understand, the will of desire this is the, it's certainly that, it certainly is that he doesn't desire them, but it's not like God's powerless to uh, not implement his will. What I mean is, it's not like God says, oh, I'd sure like it if they would come back. But man, I, sh- I just can't do anything about it. <laughs> no, he goes off and chases after them. And I think this is that kind of will of the Father, the active will of God, which goes after those and, and, and makes sure that they persevere and they are preserved in the faith. 
Now, what we're going to do is look at a portion of Scripture that is probably more well-known than what even this previous one was or the other ones about offenses and ask the question asked about who's going to be the greatest. But I want to connect it to the previous verses <clears throat> this way. The Lord Jesus has just said that it is not the will of the Father in heaven that any of the little ones, ones who believe in Christ, should perish. We learn from that paragraph about finding lost sheep and that the Lord cares for his people and none of them will be permanently lost. They might stray for a while, but not forever. It is because the Lord desires every sheep to be rescued that he instructs the church, the disciples and us, about what to do when a disciple strays away from the flock. Okay? We're now going to look at the actual implementation of a procedure that the Lord commends to us for how to go fetch one of those lost sheep and bring them back into the fold. That is crucial for us because it teaches us that church discipline, which we're going to look at, is a restorative matter. It is a, it's an attempt to go find one of those sheep that's lost out on the mountains of sin and bring them back into the fold. The sinner does not stray from the flock by wandering off into some faraway mountains like he's a sheep with Alzheimer's or dementia. I want you to picture that for a moment. We're not talking about somebody that just wanders off like, you know, your absent-minded child when you're at the zoo goes off and he's looking at this and everybody else is moving on to, you know, the next exhibit. And uh, he's kind of oblivious to what's going on and he's kind of clueless or or like a person who has lost their mind and they're just going along the way that seems okay and, and nice for them and the scenery is beautiful and everything and, and everybody else has moved on. It's not that a person wanders away physically. He does so, that is, astray, goes astray by living in sin and not repenting. That's what it means to go astray for the little one who believes in Christ. Okay, so we're taking the illustration, sheep physically wandering away, a distance away, and we're saying it applies to people who wander spiritually far away by living in sin. Okay, you with me? Okay, for the church family then, it is imperative to take these steps in verses 15 to 17 to persuade the brother to repent and come back to the fold. In other words, to be found, in quotation marks, using the illustration of the sheep. Because God desires his people to be safe in the sheepfold, which is the assembly of believers. If you are living in sin, you are not safe. Can I just say it that way? You are like a sheep out, <clears throat> out and about on its own. No one else with you. No other sheep, no other goats with the, the horns to help you, no other shepherd with you know, a, a, a gun or a, a, an instrument to protect you from the lions and wolves and all of that sort of thing. You are just out there exposed for the world to do whatever. And that's what it's like for somebody who walks away from God, from, from the fold of, of the church and lives in sin. 
And I wish, I just wish that people could see that. If they could see themselves like from 50,000 feet and it could, be, it could kind of be projected on their mind, like here's the church and you decided to live with somebody or do something or you're in this kind of sin and, and they could physically kind of see themselves moving away out into the badlands in, in danger and the wolves just waiting around the bend for them as they go a little bit farther They're going to be eaten alive. Satan, like a roaring lion, prowling around seeking people to devour. If they could just see that. And and oftentimes, though, it's the church that observes it much more keenly than the person themselves who's living in sin because they're having a nice time. They're thinking, wow, this is great. I'm getting away with it. I'm doing what I want to do. But... They're in danger, in a very dangerous place. <clears throat> the ministry of the church in such a case is, is the ministry toward unrepentant sinners or sometimes what we call church discipline. Regardless the name of, of the name of it, the goal is to bring sinners back, not to push them away. Okay, so we always have to keep that in mind. People get this idea that, well, church discipline, that's just about getting rid of people. Well, that's totally the opposite of what it is. Totally the opposite of what it is. It's all about bringing people back. The problem is the people that are needing to be brought back don't see that there's anything wrong with them because they're in that self-deceived mentality. Everything's fine. I'll be fine. Nothing's wrong. I don't need the church. Uh, You know, they're a bunch of prudes or whatever. I'll do what I want to do. They can't tell me what to do. That's a mindset that's a very dangerous kind of mindset. Here's the text. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, verse 15 says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take one or two, take with you, sorry, one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. There you'll notice the Old Testament principle that Every matter has to be established by two or three witnesses. You can't just take the word of one against the word of another. Um, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Lord willing, tonight. Verse 17, And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, the church hasn't even begun yet. It wasn't born until Acts chapter 2, but the Lord is providing some basic instruction for the operation of the church to know who is in and who is outside of the church. The text outlines what we commonly think of as a three-step process by which a brother, sorry, by which a Christian can try to persuade a professing brother or sister that he needs to take care of a fault. First you go privately, then you go with a couple of witnesses, one or two witnesses, then you tell it to the church. In actuality, there are four steps here. And you can see them by looking at the verbs that are directed towards the you in the passage. You go and tell your brother. That's number one. Number two, take with you one or two more. Number three, tell it to the church. Number four, let him be to you like a tax collector or an unbeliever. Okay, so it's really a four-step process, not just three, but commonly you know, dealt, addressed as a three-step process. Now, let me give you some interpretive cautions here 
where people can get kind of hung up. And I've seen this used in a self-defensive mechanism, some of these, before. You know, you didn't do this right, so you're a bad person. And I don't have to deal with my sin, in, in effect. Years ago, I mean, probably 15 years ago, I had that very thing happen on the front steps of our entrance in the church, somebody confronting me about that. You didn't come to me directly and tell me this because I had given them a note or wrote to them or called them or something. I can't remember what it was now. But <clears throat> Here's the first interpretive caution. This text does not demand that you physically go to your brother initially through only a personal visit. Now, that way is best, I believe, if you can. But if we are to insist that you must travel to the brother to speak to him, we, I think, make an error. Sometimes, uh, maybe you've experienced this, you want to go speak to somebody. They don't want you to come and speak to them. The door is closed. Well, how do you get through the door then? Well, we're clever and we use some means of technology, some communication, telephone call, email, text message, voicemail, whatever, to try to make some initial contact with a person because people are hard-hearted and hard-headed. So I don't believe that it demands us to physically go to them. If we did believe that, you know, kind of, how can I say, technically, uh, in a limited fashion, we would thus criticize Paul for confronting, say, the sin of the Corinthian church. How did he do that? Well, sometimes he was in person. Other times he did it by what? Letters that we read. You, 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 what do you mean, Paul? You can't do that. Paul, you did it the wrong way. You're supposed to go to them directly. Oh, well, tell, try to tell Paul that. Uh, you know, We undercut Paul from writing to the Galatian church about a massive error. You, you're receiving a false gospel. You'd think Paul should go and talk to them personally about that. Well, no, I don't think so. Now, you might object that those were not sins against Paul personally and their church-wide matters, maybe more public matters. In fact, sometimes the publicity of the matter, I say the publicity of it or publicness of the matter, almost means that you kind of skip over the private stage, if you will. You have to use wisdom about how that works. I mean, if something's already out, way out in the open, then what do you do? Well, in any case, we can talk about that later. So you might object that those sins in Corinth or Galatia were not against Paul personally, although I would, I would debate that objection since, you know, these, these very bad kind of public sins would seem to demand personal presence if you're going to demand you go physically to the brother or brothers. But I don't have to put a whole lot of effort into making that objection because what about those portions of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians that have to do with the church's disapproval of Paul personally? You know, Paul's weighty in his letters, but in presence he's he's a sniveling little man, you know, and that's a heavy paraphrase, but he's not much to to appreciate. Uh, they disapprove of Paul's methods, uh you know, Paul said he was coming, but then he's not coming, so he's kind of a two-faced guy. He defends himself against that in 2 Corinthians. Um, you know, he claimed to be an apostle, but they were undercutting that claim to apostleship, and he defended himself in both the Corinthian letters and the Galatian letter. Um, these are issues of sin against Paul and against the Lord, since Paul is Christ's messenger. 
that there are indeed issues where someone or someone sinned personally against Paul. And what Paul is doing with them, by letter, certainly, if you know, you know somebody has something against you, go to your brother and address that issue. Uh, in fact, it, it doesn't necessarily even there say, go to your brother, like physically again. It just says, deal with the issue with them. Stop your work at the altar, offering God, and make sure that you're reconciled to your brother. Almost any critical portion of the New Testament, that is, portion of the New Testament that offers criticism, that calls out specific sins, could itself be criticized because the author did not go personally to do so and uh, you know, with the uh, people that, it was, that were being written to. That's kind of one caution from in- interpreting the text and using it as kind of a club against a- another person. Uh, the text also, secondly, does not demand that public sins be first addressed with a private rebuke. Now, it would be a good thing if there was a private start to the matter. But I've seen online, you know, people uh, saying, uh, you know, big name A makes some false teaching, and big name B comes along and confronts them publicly, and people criticize B. B, you should have gone to A privately. Please. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me at all in the context of what we're saying here. Uh, A did not sin personally against B in that sense. Uh, A gave some false teaching that needed to be addressed. Now, it would be fine for B to go to A and talk if they, if they want to, and then, but what happens if A does not agree and will not recant of that false position, that false teaching? Uh, then B is going to have to protect his flock if he's a pastor, say, and say, look, A is out there on his podcast, on his blog, on his videos saying such and such, and that's a false teaching. And he has to do that publicly with the church. Um, So it has to be called out in public eventually because there are people who are being misinformed and need to be helped with the correct teaching. Bible teachers, by the way, are subject to a what? stricter judgment, and so if somebody, and and that can happen in this life, not just in the judgment seat of Christ. So if a pastor has a false teaching or a wrong um, observation or uh, interpretation of the text, he may well, well, in fact, be called out on it in this life, and and it should be that case. Do not be surprised if you're teaching the Bible publicly to be called out publicly if you have taught some wrong thing. Um, You cannot make some big error in public and expect it to be hidden away in private so that you don't have to deal with it. Now, I'm going to say in a few moments, you've got to make sure that you understand what the person said, that it wasn't a misspeaking, that it wasn't you who was you know, uh, kind of in outer space for a few minutes as they were speaking and you kind of misunderstood what they were saying or the context of what they're saying or the, that they were saying it with satire or humor or, or some other thing. Uh, so we give a latitude for that. But, I mean, if somebody gets up and says, you know, Jesus is not the Christ, or if somebody takes this video and cuts it so that they have me on there saying Jesus is not the Christ, and they say, oh, he's a false teacher, um, you know, wrong, Try again, uh, do better next time with your criticism. Uh, third interpretive caution. Uh, 
this one is something that might have happened uh, before. If person A sins against person B, and an outside observer sees that, we'll call him person C, this does not mean that C was sinned against. A sinned against B, and somebody out here observing said, A and B, something's not right there. Uh, They need to get that straightened out. Um, I don't believe that C is obligated to go to either of them under the terms of this portion of Scripture. Uh, Now, it would be good if C, a person C, had enough Christian maturity, or can I just call it spiritual guts, to go and deal with the issue, to talk to A, or probably A if A sinned against B, um, and, and, and try to say, hey, look, uh, you know, take care of that and make sure that's good, but perhaps person C goes to their pastor or some other wise Christian person and says, what do I do about that? Do I overlook it? Do I uh, say something? Do you, know, you say something? Uh, yeah, you, would, you say something. That's easier than me saying something. <laughs> pastor says, thank you very much. I'm very glad to have that responsibility now. I have to say something. And uh, but maybe, um, you know, C is not a, the most mature Christian or they're afraid of how they will come across or something. I, I'm going to leave room for imperfect practice in this life, and we all try to improve our practice as we mature in Christ. But since at least person C and probably A and B are in the same church, this does have to do with the pastor in the church, doesn't it? Because what impacts the church impacts them. And I, I put a cross-reference in my notes. These are available online, by the way, if you want to look at them. Uh, and that cross-reference is 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and 29, in which Paul is saying to the church, you know, who in, that, who in the church there is not uh, basically hurt or troubled or uh, burned, and I am not. It's like what happens to the church does, in a sense, happen to the ministers of the church, elders or pastors, in particular, are charged with the responsibility of warning those who are unruly, comforting the faint, upholding the weak, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Since that's the case, it falls within their job description to help brothers A and B get things straightened out by asking them to speak to one another or something to get that fixed. Uh, Here's another objection, number four, interpretive objection. And this is, I'm just supposing a, a quote here from somebody who does not like Matthew 18, 15 to 17. God values, they might say, the love and unity of the Spirit. Using this passage for church discipline has to be wrong, or it must be for another time and place, because God would never have someone to leave the church. That's just false thinking. It sounds pious you know, love and unity of the Spirit and all. Hard to argue against in a way, isn't it? But that's actually, it's actually evil thinking. The Bible's full of the doctrine of separation. A whole chapter or most of a chapter in 1 Corinthians 5 is given over to the issue of a man who's living in immorality. He's got to go. You have to remove him. Jesus tells us to treat the person like a tax collector and a sinner. If that was true at any time in history, in any place, in any assembly, that would horrify somebody who wants to talk about love and unity, right? They would talk about it here back in the first century, just like they talk about it here in the 20th and the 21st century. Uh, 
you know, what's the difference? The Bible is full of the doctrine of separation. If people don't repent, they are to be removed from the assembly of believers. Revelation 2 and 3, uh, Jesus calls most of those churches, uh, uh, maybe four or five of them, I haven't done a count lately just to remind myself of it, but many of them, he asks them to repent. And if they don't, what's going to happen? Their lamp is going to be removed from the lampstand, right? They're going to cease to be part of God's true church. He'll remove them from his sight. The Old Testament holiness codes show us that God is serious about keeping pagans away from his people. Why? Because his people are weak and they are too sub- subject to people coming along and and uh, intermarriage, and uh, bringing false religion, and false doctrines, and ideas, and philosophies, and trying to be conformed to the ways of the world. And so God wants there to be a level of separation between us and the people around us in the world because of the danger that people pose who are uh, unbelieving people. Yes, there are people out there who are not just innocent, uh, innocent pagans, They're pagans who have an agenda, and that agenda might be you, your sin, you to fall into sin, to be seduced into sin, to to teach you to to believe some false doctrine and so on. So we we set aside this potential objection with a great prejudice, so to speak, because we know that God wants us to be pure. Come out from among them. Don't touch the unclean thing. Be separate, says the Lord. Uh, very clear in the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. What does that mean but to separate yourself from sin? Very clear in the Scriptures. So this is, this is the kind of underpinning or foundation of, of uh, teaching here in Matthew 18, 15 to 17 that deals with if, this question, if the believer persists to stray, then you have to have them out of the church. That's not our ultimate goal. Remember, the ultimate goal is restoration. The ultimate goal is, uh, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. This is the first step and the purpose of this so-called church discipline. Now, that's a stressful thing. Have you ever had to go and tell your brother something? I've had to do that a number of times. In the church life, tell the brother his fault. You fear that he may respond negatively. I don't have any scientific studies, but it seems like most of the time people do respond negatively, don't they? Because we don't like to be told that we're in sin. We don't, we, we, our defense mechanisms, our little walls go up right away and, no, that's not, get out of my business or that's not wrong or, or whatever. You know, you who are told to do this are apprehensive about bringing up an issue because uh, it's, it's, it could ruin your friendship. Or it could result in the loss of a member of the church. Look again at verse 15 here. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. What a blessing. What a relief from that stress. What a gift from God. And I... I, you know, despite the statistical um, what likelihood of somebody rejecting what you're saying, uh, don't lack faith in what God can do. Don't lack faith in what God can do. Don't be so stressed 
that you can't be obedient to this passage of Scripture. To hear here in this passage, to hear obviously means more than to hear what you have to say. It means to get it. You know, the brother, if the brother that you went to who had sinned were to say, oh man, I didn't realize that I had done that, or I didn't see it that way. Thank you for sharing that with me. I hear you. I repent of that sin. That is, that is a brother receiving a rebuke from another brother, and that is a, like the, the wounds of a friend. A, a, what does that proverb say? I have it just in the tip of my tongue. I can't get it. A rebuke from a loving brother who's offering faithful wounds as a friend. Proverbs 27.6. Rather than the kisses of an enemy? Yes, thank you. It'll start to come here. Uh, the hearing results in repentance, like the hearing of the word of the Lord. Not only, I would say, not only does faith come by hearing, but repentance comes by hearing the word. You see that? Why? Because faith and repentance are, are linked together like this, like, a, like two sides of a coin or two links in a chain. They're, they're interconnected. If you have true faith, you have repentance. If you have true repentance, you have true faith. So repentance comes by hearing, and if you're bringing this thing to the brother or sister in a way that shares the Word of God with them. Now notice the text says in 15, if uh, he hears you, you have gained your brother. Uh, Going back to that favorite dictionary, B-D-A-G, okay? Uh, You look in there, and it talks about the word gain. It means to acquire by effort or investment, you know, you'd rather go push mow your two-acre lawn than go talk to your brother about his sin, because it's like, man, it's so nerve-wracking, and something bad might happen, and he might get mad at me, or I might not say things right, or whatever, but so what I'm illustrating is, you know, that's, going to them is an investment. It's an investment in their spiritual life, It's an investment into another Christian's life to try to help them see their wrong for what it is and to amend their ways. And the return on investment can be very great. You know, it can also also be like a stock market crash sometimes when you go and try to make that investment. But don't let that break your faith in God or your obedience to this passage. You want to get your brother to hear you And, of course, that stress means you're going to be all the more careful to craft what you're saying and do it in a good way, hopefully, so that everything is right again in the end. Let's go back to the beginning of the verse. If your brother sins against you. Now, indeed, (laughs) you almost wish it didn't say if. When, it's, it's assumed like this is going to be a fairly commonplace situation, often in this life, many times. Uh, Now, sometimes a brother or sister will be sensitive enough if A sins against B that B doesn't have to do anything. A will go to B and say, I I blew it. I'm sorry. I I went home and I thought about that, and I said, man, that was a dumb-headed thing to say or do or whatever, and offer an apology. And person B should have a heart that's already predisposed to forgive them. Yes? Immediately. Why? 
Because person B, like person A, if they're both Christians, has experienced the overabundant grace of God in forgiveness towards themselves, and so forgiving another person for some small error, some slight, some sin, is relatively like trivial compared to what God has done for us. If we are like that servant, remember, who was forgiven a million dollars, basically, and then he goes out and goes after some guy that owes him 20 bucks. I mean, how pathetic. You got to look at that and say, man, I'm a million dollars on the positive side today. What's 20 bucks? You know, it's nothing. I'm just glad to have it all over with. And I can pass the blessing of forgiveness on to the next person and just forget about the whole thing. Super. But he didn't do that in that illustration, that uh, parable. And uh, the Lord uses that to show us that if you don't forgive others, you don't understand forgiveness, which is a heavy-duty evidence that you haven't been forgiven, actually, from your sin. So hopefully... Uh, you'll be predisposed to forgive them. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 talks about not having malice uh, toward one another and uh, that sort of thing, and that we should uh, uh, forgive one another. Let me read those, Ephesians 4, just to remind us of them. 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Notice that tender-heartedness, not hard-hearted, not hard-hearted. Are you hard-hearted towards somebody? Are you kind toward them? Are you forgiving toward them, even as God in Christ forgave you? You recognize that you are just as bad of a sinner as that other person that sinned against you? You might even be worse. Who's the worst sinner you know? (laughs) Yourself. I mean, you might piously imagine all those people are much worse than I am. If you have an idea about yourself, a legitimate, real notion of who you really are, you know all the sins that you commit externally that people can see, and then you know all the sins that you commit internally that people can't see. And you know those are bad. And you can't see what so-and-so and and -and so-and-so all does inside of their minds. As far as you're concerned, you're the worst sinner you know. Um, Thank God for his grace toward the chief of sinners. And Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And, you know, I think he's modeling for us. I am too. I'm the chief of sinners. And if God has forgiven the chief of sinners then the chief of sinners ought to be able to forgive the next person down the line, according to Ephesians 4, 32, and to do so for the sake of Christ, just as God in Christ forgave us. The sin is forgiven as God forgave us. It's metaphorically placed under the crimson tide, under the blood of Christ, and it's washed in the cross work of Christ. You might use that phrase or think about using that phrase. Brother or sister, it's under the blood. Forget it. It's done and over with. Washed away. The flood has just taken it away and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't go reclaim it. It's gone. It's washed into the ocean. Finished. What a blessing. 
Other times, the sin is of such a nature that A does against B, that B realizes, you know, maybe it's a fault of my hearing or my understanding or another a limitation of the person. Maybe it's a mistake on my part, how I considered the situation or understood it. Perhaps it's a small thing. Maybe it's a quirk. Maybe it's a genuine sin, but you overlook it because you love the brother. Proverbs 10.12 is picked up in 1 Peter 4.8 and says this basically, love covers a multitude of sins. Look, just bury it. What's the big deal? How many times have you sinned against somebody else and you've lost the opportunity to confess it to them? Time has passed. You realize some things, you, you ever think like some things like, I did that a few years ago and I didn't realize what I was doing? It's like, not like the statute of limitations has run out, but it's like you can't go back and undo that stuff. You know, it's just, you've got to just, just bury it under the avalanche of the love of God and just be blessed by God's forgiveness. Only when the sin is serious enough or it's a pattern enough or harmful enough to warrant do we even start this process here. And that's a wisdom call as to when that is, but as you know, when we've dealt with things congregationally, you know, it's not like small stuff. It's big life decisions, big life issues that people have that cause this to be the case. Now, the initial privacy, when, he, when it says go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, the initial privacy is important because it protects the reputation of the brother and keeps sin where it started at the local level. It doesn't gossip or spread it around, and this is maybe part of the objection that we looked at about person C seeing person A and B and does C go to somebody else or not. Uh, so that can come into it. Um, of course, unless, unless C goes to a person who can be part of the solution to the problem, then it's not really gossip. You know, it's, it's not like C goes around and tells all their neighbors about this you know, juicy tidbit that happened. Uh, this, this, this indiscretion or whatever. They're, if they go to somebody who can help solve the problem, then it's not really gossip. It doesn't count as gossip. It doesn't fit under that category. But anyway, that's the first step. The second through the fourth are, uh, steps are in verses 16 to 17, and I don't know that we'll get through these here in the few minutes we have remaining, but we can start at it. Uh, these proceed in a similar manner as the f- first step. The fourth, of course, is of a different nature, but with sin issues that are significant enough to warrant this process, if the brother fails to heed your call to repent, then it's time to take along one or two others. Now, it says, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Um. Now, the question always comes up, are these witnesses of the original offense or pattern of offenses, or are these witnesses of the second step of church discipline? And the answer, in my mind, is clearly the first of those two options. They are witnesses of the offense that occurred. Okay, The sin must have been such that it was known to others as well. Okay, now, how could this be? Well, let's say person A stole something from person B, and person C observed the theft, 
and person D has been a victim of the same kind of theft from person A. And you know what I'm saying? So C and D become witnesses of the same offense, the same sin, the same pattern. Um, and so they could qualify. But if A does something to B and it's in private and it's he said and she said or he said and he said, then you have a bit of a, a challenge there. You have a problem with the two or three witnesses issue. So uh, these are others who have observed the bad pattern of behavior. They establish the truth of the sinful behavior. And this is where Jesus uses the principle from Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17 and 19, and John 8, 17, which talks about two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament, those Old Testament passages basically are surrounding the idea of you can't condemn somebody where there's only one witness against them. That would be a that would be a disaster. That would be a real disaster. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, today we, I suppose we stretch that a little bit. Like if the security camera sees them do that, then that's a witness. And that's like, that could be the only witness perhaps, but we trust the security camera, I suppose. But I wonder, these days, could somebody doctor the film on the security camera? And then it becomes one witness that's actually one person who is presenting evidence that's invalid. So the principle still stands, in fact. Um, and so nobody was to be put to death on the evidence of just one witness. In the Old Testament, it had to be two or three. Now, what if there weren't two or three witnesses? The person didn't get punished. That's all. Uh, the, the issue of the, the potential problem of wrongly punishing an innocent person is so severe that we have to err on the side of requiring two or three or more witnesses before we punish somebody. Um, and, you know, so for instance, some of the, what I'm saying is, uh, is true like in modern jurisprudence. How many times have you heard of the Innocence Project type programs, finding somebody that's been in jail for 20 years who didn't commit the crime. That is insufferable to me. That is just insufferable. Some years ago, there was a, a, a spate of these where people were, were convicted on bite mark evidence. And a local radio station did a real expose of that and showed that the person who was the expert witness of bite mark evidence wasn't actually an expert uh, and, and didn't make correct conclusions about this bite mark evidence. You know, somebody bit somebody and like, oh, wow, that matches the teeth and all that. How do you know that? But they, a bunch of people were let out of prison because that evidence was, was incorrect. What you have there is you have one witness, a bite mark witness, uh, 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 you know, expert witness testifying against that person. And basically, the jury and the judge and the prosecutor is believing that one witness against that person. No, no, no. If you're on a jury, you better require that there be evidence that proves that somebody is in the wrong before you send that person to jail or the death penalty or whatever it is. That's the only Christian thing to do, my friends. Um, and if you don't have that evidence, then it may be that a guilty person goes off, you know, gets off the hook. It may be that. But that is just how it's going to have to be. Some sins will go unaddressed. Do not fret, however, because of evildoers that get away with their evil. If it cannot be addressed this time, 
There will be another time if a person has a pattern of misbehavior. And if you can't get them those times, they're not going to escape when they stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay? They will get their comeuppance at the judgment seat. And, and two, notice, you, you know, you're not looking for vengeance against that person. If you can't prove that, you know, with witnesses that so-and-so, such-and-such happened, just drop it. Just drop it. You're not, you can't, you know, live life looking for vengeance, like I'm going to find out something about that person. I'm going to really get them. That's not a Christian attitude. The controlling idea, again, is this. In verse number 15, you have gained your brother. That's what your goal is. Even if somebody sins and they get away with it, later on the Spirit of God may get a hold of them and guess what? They confess it themselves and they realize that they've sinned and um, are brought to repentance. So I want to stop there because of the time this evening. I didn't anticipate that it was going to take that long, but maybe that's just because I'm talking too much. Uh, But... (laughs) So we will pause there, but pray with me, would you please, tonight. Father, as we close this evening, uh, help us to understand these biblical principles of of justice and of um, dealing with one another in a a kind and loving manner, uh, recognizing that we are, all of us, full of faults and not perfect and uh, far from it. Lord, I pray that you would bless your people, that in our assembly we would have folks who hold themselves to uh, short accounts and that there's some issue between a brother and sister. They won't hang on to that. They won't stew about it. They won't be bitter about it. They just drop it, let it go into the blood of Christ or bring it to the person's attention and receive the confession and offer forgiveness and just be done. May that be the case in our homes that husbands and wives won't have long periods of time where they're exercising the silent treatment and being all upset at each other and going off and pouting in their rooms and and that sort of thing, and the the children the same. Lord, help us to have control of ourselves by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.